Uh, We're reading from Acts chapter 4, verses 32, to Acts chapter 5, verse 11. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had, had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, but a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That was the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Bow your heads, please. Lord Jesus, thank you that your word is real, and that it doesn't hide or try to cut corners. It's very accurate, historical, and it tells it like it is. Thank you for this sobering account that you're going to allow us to Enter into today, Lord, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me, Lord. You would help us see what you want us to see. Help us understand what the authors in the first century wanted those guys to understand and help us understand now how do we apply it today. Lord Jesus, have your way. Um, I pray that you'll be preparing our hearts, passionate to want to know what you have to say. And Lord... If I just am up here speaking and sharing my own stuff, Lord, this is just an exercise of futility. I pray that you'll speak your words. Would you be gracious to do that through me? In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated, guys. As you can see, we are going through a book of the Bible, Acts. That's uh, what we do as a local body. And uh, if you need a Bible... Johnny, my man, is holding out Bibles for everyone to grab, so please feel free. 
We, uh, we really encourage you to grab a Bible so that you can continue to get used to <clears throat> flowing through the scriptures and turning the pages and seeing the redemptive story for yourself. I want to just encourage you, if, there are, if there's a question that you have that can encourage um, the people of God in this room, please feel free to ask it. Uh, that, we do that here. That's totally cool. Um, however, if it's something that's more specific, we ask that you would just come up afterwards and come talk to me. Um, but we, we really want this not to be just a session where we just learn more stuff, but at least toward worship. And so we, we believe that uh, what you do is predicated on what you know, so we want it to be accurate. We want your worship to be informed accurately. So that's why we have that uh, posture, guys. Uh, if you are a visitor here, you are, you're, moving, you're on a moving train. We're in Acts chapter 4 and obviously enter into Acts chapter 5. Uh, we've done many books uh, before this book. This is the book we're in now. Um, and what I want to do real quick, if you can just look up, you'll see uh, just a brief synopsis of where we've uh, gone so far. We kind of adjust this because if we keep adding, we'll have four or five pages of, of notes. And so we kind of adjust it uh, every like three or four weeks. Uh, basically, the way we started out, uh, just reminding you guys that uh, Luke and Acts was one book, okay? Then it became uh, two books. It was one book for a canon that was written for Theophilus, uh, talking about the life and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we learned as a body uh, that basically what he was trying to proclaim was that Jesus rises from the dead. Um, he reveals the life that Luke uh, was talking about, right? Basically, just trying to talk about the works of Jesus, uh, the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. What Jesus does in Acts chapter 1 is he rises from the dead. Everyone gets excited, uh, realizing that, man, they, they've given their life to this, this dude who's actually the savior of the universe. Uh, he gives a mission. He says, hey, now that you realize I am, I am the one, I am God, I'm going to give you a mission. And he tells them, hey, I'm calling you to proclaim uh, my good news of who I am to the ends of the earth. And then he basically empowers them to do this, right? He gives them the mission, but then he gives them power to accomplish it. Uh, in the scriptures, it talks about him filling uh, the disciples uh, with the Holy Spirit. It gives them the power to accomplish the mission that is to be uh, evangelistic and to proclaim the gospel. Continue on, please. Uh, the gospel is preached to onlookers. We see in the scriptures, right? And the God gives grace to uh, the people of God in that community. All of a sudden, there are all these believers. They say, okay, we need to form a Christian community, right? So I love this, right? They're, trying to, they're figuring this thing out. They got this risen Savior who's empowered them supernaturally. People start coming to Christ. Uh, people, you know, both, and what's interesting, not just Jews, Greeks, everybody started coming to Christ. Uh, probably mostly at that point was like Jews. And all of a sudden, uh, grace, God gives them the grace to uh, form a Christian community, then what happens uh, is very important. He begins, this is Jesus, begins to validate what he's doing in that group of people by allowing them to be and act like he is, right? And so they begin to do miracles, which, almost, which validates that, okay, so Jesus did miracles. Jesus is the Lord. He's called these people to be his, 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 his agents of change, his people to go out and proclaim the gospel. And so they're going to do miracles. And so we see a miracle performed uh, in the scriptures early on, which validates that he's alive and working through the people of God, through these new people who we would say, as it were, are now the people of God. Um, in doing so, we have a lame man who's been lame for 40 years. He gets up, he's walking. Everyone's blown away by this because they grew up with this guy. Uh, and they begin to question Peter and John, 
Peter and John goes through questioning. They're put in uh, custody. Uh, they get released. We see last week they go and they're proclaiming the gospel uh, with their friends about with how, how gracious the Lord was. They begin to pray. And in the midst of them knowing that they can be either murdered or persecuted big time, these guys get together, they pray, and they ask God for more boldness to go back out and do the very thing that they were told not to do, and that is to proclaim the gospel. And so now we enter into this text here, um, verse 32, as we continue on the story of what's going on with Peter, John, and these new disciples. And it starts in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. Now, isn't that interesting? Why do you think, when, you, when, you, when we talk about putting your first century glasses on, but also when you're reading the Bible, we always want to ask yourself good questions, right? So ask yourself the question, why do you think it says there, uh, now the full number of those who believe? Matthew. Okay. Thank you. So, so what, we're, what, we're, what we're starting off here is I wanna, I, I'm glad Matthew said that because basically this whole passage has to uh, make us really think about two big things, unity and our stuff, okay? And I want to propose to you, and you've seen this already. We've already seen this a few times in Acts. It's so interesting that, that, that it seems like in Luke, the book of Luke, when you read Luke, that I'm, a, I'm amazed at how much Luke talks about our stuff in reference to the gospel, of how what we do with our possessions and how we treat each other is, is very important to how we look at and view the gospel, right? And so he says, now, full number. How many people do you think that is? If we're honest, right, when you, well, maybe it's just me. When I've read that for years, I've thought, okay, so it was 140, whatever. But you remember how many people have been coming to Christ? okay. So the author wants you to know, now wait, we just, we, we saw 3,000, right? Then we saw, what, 5,000 men, remember? So we know it was more children, right, and women. So it's probably fair to say we're talking 10,000, maybe. Some, some theologians would say 15 to 20,000 people. Because you got to keep in mind, these guys are, they're getting, they're getting questioned and all these people who have now come to Christ are looking like you better not do nothing to them, right? And that's why they were scared. So think about that. Now, now pause, because to me, in the flesh, it's easier to determine and see 120 people say, oh, man, we had a good time at the bake sale. This is awesome. We just love each other. Hey, you take my cookies. I'll take your bread. You know, and that, that seems really cool, right? That seems like that's kind of easy to do. But I think it's interesting that the author would tell you and me that we're talking five to 20,000 people, and he says every one of them had everything in common. It's interesting that he would make the point to say everyone, everyone was of one heart. Don't you think that's interesting? That seems kind of supernatural. That seems crazy, Right? Now, when he says, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, what does that look like? What does it mean to have everything in common? Right? It's that means that when, when Frank says that, that he has something, then I can say that's mine too. That's what that means. So think of anything that you think is yours, 
in this covenant community, they didn't see it like that. Well, I mean, that's not fair. They saw it as theirs, but then when Josh said, hey, it's mine too, we didn't go, no, it's not. We say, yeah, you're right, it's yours too. There was that radical for thousands of people. Keep that in your mind. We're talking thousands of people now, guys, had this mindset. Tell me something. Do you think that affected the community? Do you think that people didn't see that and go, what in the world? Do you now wonder, well, why? Okay, so is that? Okay, it makes sense. So many people came to Christ during that time. I wonder why. I wonder why. May I give one more brief caveat before we continue on? Notice something, family. Notice how much we talk about in evangelical America today, we talk a lot about personal faith, individualism, you know, like me and Jesus kind of deal. Have you noticed, we've seen this in Acts, in every book we read, though, but notice it here. Have you noticed how much, that's, there's no airplay there? Whenever you're hearing about Christianity and what's going on, it seems to happen in the scriptures in the context of community. Have you noticed that? This is something I was noticing as I was spending time just, just praying. Even this morning, I was praying for this church and for our local body, and I was like, man, I'm amazed at, at how the people of God as a community is how God talks about the people. Yeah, so had everything in common. Now, the question I want you to keep in your mind as we as a body, and I feel like this text here I'm excited because, you know, we all can grow, but I, I think we, I, I love this church, and I think we do, um, I think it's an area where we're, we're at, at, at the least, we're, a con- we're awakened consciously. Like, we, we're trying to do some of these things. So I was kind of like, praise the Lord for our local body, because I see this, I see movements like this in our space. Just want to encourage you, as I was reading, I just was really, really encouraged. Uh, but I want you to be asking yourself, am I a builder or a detractor of unity? Okay? As we read. Am I the person who is helping build and foster oneness? Or for some reason, around me, is that when people start to be suspicious? Start to detract from unity? Let's ask yourself that question. Now, I want to I propose to you, how, how do you get people, thousands of people, to get to that point? To get there? Okay, I want to propose to you, a, a little circle I was you know, just, just researching, things of that sort. I want to propose to you um, that, that in a nutshell, as we're reading Scripture, as we're going through life, this is more of just understanding the doctrine of unity. It seems like you have love, you have, then you have, if you, if you have love, you have true unity. You can just continue on with the flow, and then I want to talk through the flow. And in true, true humility, you can't really have true unity if, if there's not humility in the camp. And I'm saying this because I want us to process this as we think about how do we and just look at ourselves individually. How do we add to a community these things? Okay, can you continue on? So, actually, you have love, true hum- unity, humility, view of self through Christ's eyes. Now, how does that work? Because I want to propose to you is that if you, when you have an accurate view of yourself in response to God, in response to Jesus, so you, you don't see yourself how you want to see yourself, but you, you see Jesus and then you see how he views you, well, you know what that does when you understand the love he's giving you? who you are in him because of him being a co-heir, a son or a daughter, and, and knowing that you got riches from Jesus and knowing that he's done this all by his grace. You know what that builds? That builds humility. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Right? 
You go, man, wow. And so then what happens is if you see yourself, so I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to go around. If you see yourself really like the way Christ sees you, you can't help have a fuel of humility. If you're humble, when you're humble, right, that allows you now to be free. And maybe it's just me, but when I'm humble, it allows me to actually love people, right? I don't know about you, but what, what hinders me from loving people a lot of times is my pride. People, someone does something to me or I have a perception of somebody, right? It's usually my pride a lot of times. But if, I, if, I'm, if I'm realizing, man, I'm really jacked up and God's been gracious to me, it allows me to love. And then, you know what? With, with gospel-centered love, I'm proposing that the Lord allows unity. Just think about it. Think about it, guys. So the Lord says a full number of one heart are all together. They got everything in common. In verse 33, it says, and with great power, which I don't know if that's kind of a term where we've seen another, like, these guys are filled with the Spirit, or we're just seeing that like, God's grace and power over them. But it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Now, let's keep in mind, they had just told, they've been told, do not share about Jesus, right? We're going to get you if you keep sharing about Jesus. Very clear here, they're still proclaiming the gospel. Right. So God answered their prayer. God gave them Acts 4.29 boldness, and now they're still proclaiming the gospel, and people still coming to faith. The scripture says great power. People are hearing the word of God. Can you imagine the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these guys sitting here, and they're just watching this? You don't think they knew that they're still proclaiming the gospel? Right? It says great grace was upon them all. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing 15,000, 20,000 people. Do you think that they have different socioeconomic stratospheres there? Do you not think there's very, very wealthy people and homeless people in that group? Very poor people, educated people? Do you not think it's just a, a gamut of different individuals? Is it a, it's, it's probably, just imagine that. Five, ten, fifteen thousand people. All different socioeconomic abilities, right? And I thought to myself, like, man, what would it look like for our church, right, our church to have this mindset? Let's go on. They're giving their testimony. They're proclaiming the gospel. And it says, there was not a needy person, verse 34, not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I want to ask a question. Who, who gave the order? Who gave the order? Right? Who said, who said okay, guys, hey, this, this summer, our outreach plan, okay, is we're going to just give to each other. We're going to care for each other radically. We're going to give. You need to sell your house. You need to do all these things. And then, therefore, who gave the order? Let me ask it another way. How did this come about? Who started this? We don't have an answer. You know why? Because there is no answer. It was grace-motivated. There, no, there, no, there was no lead pastor or elder who said, hey, guys, here's what we need to do. You need to sell your house. You need to do these things. That's not what happened. It seems that the people of God, they just began to be operating out of grace, operating out of love of God, and as they loved people, as they walked with the Lord and saw who he was, they were more free of their stuff, and they were able to care for each other. Right? I talk about that because uh, it seems like these hearts, um, 
These hearts of giving were out of faith, not coercion. Right? You see that? Out of faith. Now, let me ask you a question. You're probably thinking, you're probably thinking right now, well, okay, you know, you've been here long enough. One week I'll tell you to enjoy your car and make sure you have cool cars, and that's awesome. And the next week I'll tell you to sell your car, right? And you're like, which one is it, Pastor? Right? You kind of get, you know, you kind of wonder, like, which one is it? I say that because here, here's what I love about this passage. I love that people gave, and let me ask you, if a person came in, and said, I mean, how do you think the person felt who hadn't given anything? How about that? And start there. So there's 20,000 people. I'm sure in that group there's some people who gave, and we know that some people did not, right, because we're going to get to the story later where, we, where a guy gets rebuked because you're like, you didn't have to give it if you didn't want to. So, so everybody had one heart and mind, but everybody didn't give everything because then, then we'd all be broke. Right? So let me ask you a question. You're in a radical environment like this, five to 10, 15,000 people. People are giving radically. You haven't given anything. How will you feel? Or you haven't given as much. Come on, talk to me, guys. How would you feel? I'm sorry, who said? Okay, keep going there. So Anna said it depends on why I didn't give. Process that with me, sis. So Anna's saying some people probably were the receivers so they didn't have the opportunity to give. And then some individuals, say it again. Okay, so there could be a healthy, healthy sense of conviction of you having to examine your own motives. I'm asking these questions, guys. Here's why I'm asking these questions, because if you're in this local body, we all struggle with this. Here's what happens. These kind of things happen in the local body where people start doing things that God wants them to do, and you know what we do? You know what happens? Is we start as a people, we start to project our junk on people. Right? And so instead of being blessed and saying, wow, that's really cool, and have enough confidence in the Lord to say, hey, I, well, I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do, we go, I'm sure there's people in that church going, well, in that church, they make you, want, they make you feel bad if you don't give. Right? They make you feel like you're not as spiritual because I didn't give. Well, is that true? Is that true? Does any, does any of us do that? Do we project our junk, Right? So we're in the local body. We ask you to share your faith. We ask you to do all these things. You don't do it. Do you just, are you comfortable in the Lord saying, if God doesn't want you to do it, don't? Or do you get mad and say, look what you're trying to make me do? You see the difference there? I guarantee you there's people in this local body who had not given everything, and they could either be a foster of unity, enjoy the Lord, and say, hey, I'm free in Jesus, I'm glad you gave your Mercedes. I'm not giving my Toyota. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And it is what it is. Or I can go, I'm so, man, in this church, every time I come here, everybody's giving stuff and they're, they're, they're serving each other. And I, I, just think, I just think it's a judgmental church. Well, what did they say? They didn't say nothing, but you know the way they look at you. Well, what, dude? They look at you. What are you talking about? 
You see where I'm going? Do any of us struggle with that? Do you struggle with the fact that you don't deal with your own junk and you project it on other people? If they ain't said nothing to you, guess what? Let me tell you this much. Let me be really clear here. If you didn't want, if they don't have to do it, then don't. It's that simple. There's people in the church who didn't have to give. All I had to say is that I'm not giving. You don't have to project your junk. And so I say we take our guilt out or, so it's either guilt because you're not, you're not living the gospel or it's conviction, right? You're seeing people do something and it's revealing to you that you're not generous, right? It reveals to you that you don't really care well about people. And instead of, instead of being humble and saying, man, that broke my heart, that I'm, I'm realizing I love my stuff more than I love people, Holy Spirit, work in my heart, help me build some muscle to grow in this area of grace, we get, we, then, we get mad, we can turn off, right, the Holy Spirit filter and say, no, it's those people trying to do something to me. It seems to me, I wonder if part of the beauty of the unity wasn't that everybody at the same time gave $50,000, but the beauty of the unity is that different people gave different things based on what they had and had the freedom, but no one was tripping on each other. No one was saying, you're more spiritual because you gave and you're less spiritual because you did not give. No one was doing that. They were giving each other grace. Grace in our body. Because of what we're trying to do, because we're proclaiming the gospel, and we have all these different things you can be a part of in our local body. Because we are designed to be a a body that gives, I'm asking you to add to unity. Add to unity. And don't detract from it because of our own baggage. In your heart, see, in this passage, in your heart, if Jesus doesn't tell you to do something, don't do it. See, Christianity, and I put this just up here, the Bible is a heart book. It's not a rule book. So it's really about your heart. What is God putting on your heart? And we go, well, but what if their heart's messed up? Now, that's between them and Jesus. And so how about this? We'll try to be good leaders and just give you opportunities, preach the gospel, to give radically, to be about the, the things of Jesus, right? And we'll believe the best, and then you believe the best. Matthew. Absolutely. So in our discipleship binder, we have something called principle versus preference. And we're, right? and, we, and we're saying that, you know what, we want to focus on spiritual pr- principles, not spiritual preferences. And what we got to make sure we do on both, in both sides is that we're not taking our preferences and making them principles. Okay? And we all are subject to do that, but I want to propose that detracts from unity. And guys, when we don't have a, a robust understanding of unity in our hearts, and when we don't have an evangelistic gospel proclamation posture, I'm proposing as I read scripture, God's power don't hang out in those churches. Josh. Amen. That's good. That's good. 
Yeah, so Josh is asking a really good question. He's like, well, where does accountability fit in? Because on one hand, you know, we want to have that freedom that, we you know, we give people that space uh, to be on that formation with Christ. At the same time, there's accountability that if I'm not doing what God wants me to do, you, our pastoral team, people in our life, people in our small groups need to be able to have an, uh, the opportunity, the freedom to say, hey, what's going on? How are you doing in this area? Right? And that's the tension that we got to always live with. We've got to live with that tension of what does it look like for us to graciously make sure that we're pointing people to vision, pointing people to mission, pointing people to who Christ is, while at the same time giving them space to allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in their life. And that's the tension we have to have. And we, and we, and we try to in this body. And that's why we get in a lot of trouble, right? We, we try to have a tension where we're going to actually tell you about yourself if you trip it, right? And then what happens is people spread rumors and things happen crazy, and that's okay. But at the end of the day, we've got to keep trying to exercise that tension. You know, and so it's, it's difficult. It's a really difficult thing because in our flesh, we, you know, we, we looked, about, looked at that a couple weeks ago. In our flesh, man, it's amazing what, how we can gird ourselves from truth, right? We saw the Sadducees, we saw those guys look dead at truth and say, well, we got to think of something else because I don't want to deal with truth right now. So it's, if, you, if you look at the past sermons, okay? So it's a tension that, Josh, man, we, we go into it with our eyes wide open knowing this is going to be difficult, it's going to be difficult to continue to give people grace and ask questions and for all of us to believe the best in each other consistently because it has to happen over and over again, right? Okay, just for the sake of time, we keep going. So here that Christianity, hear this as a local body. Christianity is about internal liberty. That's, that's the beauty of Christ. And so people say uh, the, 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 uh, the conjunction but, but God is like one of the major grammatical Power, power structures in the scriptures, and I absolutely agree. I think there's another one. There's a preposition that I think is just as important, and that is a preposition in Christ. That prepositional phrase is one of the most important phrases that you and I can ever grasp as a believer, and that is everything that we do now is not about the five rules or the ten rules, but everything we do is in Christ. It's, well, what are you thinking about that? In Christ. Are you doing that? In Christ. Right? I went a little longer on those notes, but I think that's something we have to continually uh, work through, guys. Now, the danger in that, in, as Josh was saying, the danger in our grace is using our grace as a license for arrogance. And what I mean by that is I, some of us, including myself, sometimes we say no because we feel the liberty and the freedom from Jesus. And sometimes we say no because we know we can in Christ. So I've seen people go, no. Well, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm, a, I'm in, in their grace. See, that, that's, that's arrogance. That's not, but, but, but whatever our response, our response should always flow from a love relationship with Jesus. Not out of, because I can, right? That's just pride. You follow, you follow me, guys? All right, so we continue on. And it said, oh, by the way, I looked at this and I thought, man, they're dispensing this to uh, these guys at their feet. And I thought, man, uh, how many of us are really would do this? We sell our house and say, "All right." I mean, I know here's the cool thing: can't ask that in this body because half of y'all done it already. But um, this is a powerful text here. And by the way, just for your own your own uh, self, uh, for your information, this is one of the passages where our our our, our liturgy comes from, as far as uh, uh, giving, uh, having your focus given going to the church, right, and then having them disperse. 
which I can't get into that right now, and how there's some wisdom in that, in the sense that it frees you up from being prideful, it allows the church to just really funnel out the money so no one gets the credit but just the people of God. So there's other reasons, but this is one of the passages that, is that, that birthed that kind, of, that kind of framework of theology of like, okay, I'm going to take what I'm giving, and I'm going to give it to the local body and trust the leadership to figure out how to disperse it among the community. Uh, verse 36 goes on. So, he, so they ran at the apostles' feet, and verse 36 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the, apostle Barnab- the apostles Barnabas, that's his nickname, uh, which means son of encouragement. He's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. We, we get to Joseph, so he gives kind of some case studies, right? So he says, hey, things are going crazy at the church. We're seeing awesome things happen. They're giving their resources. All of these guys have all things together um, in common. They give them to the apostles to disperse among everybody. Uh, can you imagine that? 10, 5,000 people? It's crazy. Think about that, guys. How does that work practically? Um, and he said, let me give you, some, me give you some, some case studies here. So what we had a dude named Joseph, right? And we get Barnabas here. Now, it's interesting that he has land because he's a Levite. Because was Levite supposed to have land? No, right? So, so that's a whole other issue of how he had land. I wonder if that's part of the author's beautiful grammatical intent to help you see that there's a new covenant. To help you see that, oh, see now in Christ, you can, these guys, we're not under the old covenant. These guys uh, have, can have land. Um, no matter the case, though, just to give you some addresses, if you want to learn more about Barnabas, uh, he's, an, he's a, he's a big-time advocate of, of Paul in the Scriptures. So Barnabas has a lot of airplay in Scripture, okay? In Acts uh, chapter 9, he's caring for Paul. Uh, he is uh, basically a shepherd of some new Gentiles in, in Acts chapter 11, verse 22. Um, he's actually a partner of one of the missionary journeys with Paul. So this guy has, you know, the Lord has u- is using him uh, dramatically, uh, so it's very, it's very telling that they would put him in a passage here. Uh, we see in 13, verse 2, he's on a missionary journey, and he's the guy who actually stands up for John Mark. Remember when Paul gets into it with Mark? Uh, he's the one that stands up for Mark and is like, hey, don't kick him to the curb. We can use this brother, and they actually split off. So uh, that's, that's his journey. Um, now, this guy, it says um, that he lays everything at his feet. And, and, and notice this. So you see this guy do this, right? You see, oh my goodness, he lays at his feet, he lays his, his house. I'm proposing to you that for him, this was huge. Because I'm pretty sure as a, as a Levite, he didn't have a ton of money. Okay? I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, I think theologians would totally say this, but I'm, I'm thinking we can't say we're totally sure, but I, I'm kind of confident that when he put his house up and he gave his belongings, it was probably pretty much most of what he had. So he does this, and the Lord gives him the grace to do that, right? Now you get to verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias comes in, okay, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for, him, for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at his apostles' feet, right? Now, it's interesting that he would allow, that the author would say, hey, I want to talk about Barnabas, how, what, the cool thing he did, and then Ananias. I don't think that these are two super separate instances. I'm proposing that one of the motivations behind Ananias and Sapphira to do what they did was because they saw maybe what, how people were treating Barnabas because of what he did. And what I'm saying here, I wonder if individuals who are doing, like, sending their stuff and putting their stuff down, that people who are kind of in the flesh are like, man, 
it seems like that's a really cool thing to do. And I want to be kind of as spiritual um, as, as these people. And so I don't know if he really wanted to sell. I don't know these things. I don't know if he really wanted to sell his property at first. And then the, the reality of like, man, we got a lot of money now. And then he kind of, you know, that could be the case. Or I don't know if his intentions the whole time were just evil. But what we do know uh, is that they both understood clearly what they were doing, right? And we understand that they both were in on this. Now, let me ask you a question. Why, why do you think this was bad? From the scriptures. What was the issue? So, Colette says deception, right? So, deception, the sin of, of hypocrisy. But here's the thing. Yes, sis. I absolutely think it was people-pleasing. Again, again, those are my inferences based on the text. But it seems to me that they are very excited about making sure that people could see what they had done. The reason why I say that is because when they died, everybody saw it. So I wonder if when they put their stuff before people, everybody saw that too. So I absolutely uh, think, think that's the case. Here's the one thing I want to I propose. I put love of money and praise of people leads to deception and fraud. And so I, I want to propose if you and me are in this room right now and we have a, a posture or uh, we can all fall into the sense of like, man, I really, I really love what people, how people feel about me. Or, man, I, 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 I work so hard. I just really want to be rich. I want to propose to you, at some point, you're susceptible to, to, to deceiving for that end or even experiencing a fraudulent life to go toward that end. I want to encourage you to be careful and hopefully we'll have a heart of repentance and not go there. So I, I absolutely agree. Uh, it seems that they want this spiritual esteem uh, so that people can go, wow, look how spiritual they are. So they take, they take their proceeds, they hold part back, and look what it says in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has certain filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? Right? And he uses the word lie twice in verse 3 and then lied in verse 4. And, and the whole concept, as we talk about the sin of hypocrisy, the lie, the lie word has a, uh, 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 the tense of like discrediting the Holy Spirit or demeaning, in a sense, the Holy Spirit. Uh, how do I say it? And say, if, you know, from where I grew up in the hood, like treating the Holy Spirit like a punk. Right? It's kind of the, uh, the tenor here. Now, What's interesting is, is why we, we, have anybody sinned worse than them before? I have. Okay, I got three Christians in the house. Cool, cool. Okay, I'm pretty sure everyone in this room <laughs> has sinned in a worse manner, right? I mean, he told a lie. You know what I'm saying? So how, why they drop dead and we not dead? Have you ever thought about that? Let me ask you this. When you sin, do you fear that you might die? You know what? Sometimes I don't. What do you think is the meaning? What do you think God is trying to teach you and me? What do you think he's trying to teach first, the first century church, as you look at this passage here? Hmm? Uh, Hebrews 10.29, I don't know if it's up. Can you put it on Hebrews 10.29? Did we pass it already? 
Look what it says. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant, which he was uh, sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Uh, this is a sense of like, do you understand that this is a sense of like when you demean the spirit, uh, here's when you outrage the spirit of grace, do you not think God is going to, uh, to do some work to you is basically the context here. And I begin to ask myself, like, what is one of the, the, the huge, the biggest cancers of our generation, of this day and age? I, wanna, I think it is that we have no fear of God. I think we have no fear of God. We totally just don't respect the Lord. We just think, man, I can, we come in here right now, and man, we don't even, we're not even, you know, some of us are sitting here, and we're just going through the theology, we're singing these songs, and our hearts are totally far from the Lord, and we don't give a rip about Jesus. Some of us can sit here, and we can go through the motions, but yet, we got all these other things that are absolutely plastic in our lives, and they're taking more time in our mind than the glory of Christ. Some of us sin, and we never even contemplate that our heart could stop right there. We don't even think that, man, God killed people because they just lied. Look what it says in the Scriptures, though. It says, verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he died. And great fear came upon all who heard it. So why did this happen? I want to propose to you because I want to propose that God's grace has been so good to us. Because it seems to me that God was planning and starting this New Testament thing. And he said, you know what? If a Christian gets in the way of what I'm trying to do, I'll kill him or her. Right? Is that fair? so, So they die. But you and I haven't. But it seems like the point was fear came upon the church. <laughs> the goal was accomplished. That you, can you imagine? Um, see, see I, I, am, I adore and I'm in love with my wife. I adore her, okay? That's my girl. You guys know how I feel about Sarah. I think she's the biggest display of God's grace in my life next to Jesus. At the same time, you know, so I, I, don't, I don't cheat on my wife because I love her. Do you know another reason why I don't cheat on my wife? Because I fear Jesus. Also, I fear God. And so, I'm not, you know what, she might get crazy one day and want to run out on me, but I ain't going nowhere. Okay? Because I read the Bible. And I fear the Lord. Right? Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think would happen to all those people who got lazy eyes looking at other people when they shouldn't be if God allowed someone who was an adulterer or who cheated in our local body to get up and do communion one day and then drop dead right here? Do you think there will be a decrease in adultery in our body? Mm Mm-hmm. Right? What if somebody came up here and acted like they were doing us a favor by putting $2 in the tithe basket Right? And they know they haven't prayed about it, thought about it. They haven't even considered the fact that this is part of worship. Right? And they think they're doing us a favor. And then God allows them to drop dead right here. Do you think next week maybe tithe would increase? Family of God, I am serious. Do you think? Because what God is doing, see, 
You're not dying because God isn't powerful. He can't kill you. You're not dying because he's gracious. You should be dead right now. I should be dead right now. The reason why we haven't dropped dead is because God has been gracious to us. And right here, he's saying, look, I'm letting y'all go know right now. Get right. This is serious. And people came and fear grabbed the whole generation there. The young men rose, it says, he wrapped them up. I love the whole concept of the three hours. You know, in history, uh, the, the tradition was it took about three hours to bury somebody. So the context was a couple things. First, the context, the author wanted you to see how, how final and quick. So he had this life, and just that quick, boom, in three hours, he would drop dead, was buried, and forgot about. That's kind of the, 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 the tenor is like, that's how quick, and now, now what? Where, who's that guy again? Oh, he did. He in the, he in the backyard. Right? So that's the first piece. The second piece is a sense of like, wow, so that quick, your husband gone. She comes up, right, lying to him, let her see bad, see what happened to bad leadership? That's why you don't get married to knuckleheads, okay, ladies? Because if she'd had a good man, he'd say, baby, look, we don't want to die. No, we're going to give all the money, right? Well, look, she comes in and she has no clue that she's a widow, right? She don't even know. Now, what's interesting to me is, look how Peter does it, though. He's like, but I want you to know something. I, you should drop dead right now, but I, I want the Lord to expose your heart. Hey, Safara, let me ask you a question. How much you, how much you sell it for? Now, let me ask you this. If she at that point would have repented and said, you know what? Okay, now, even though she lied, even though they did it wrong, right, they did it wrong, if she would have said, actually, we sold it for 32 grand. I think she'd still be alive in the scriptures right now. Even though it still was sinful that she did it. I think coming clean, repentance. Her saying, I, I agree with you, Lord. I don't know, I went crazy for a minute. Here's what I did. I, I'm, I, I would have put my stakes that our gracious Lord have said, cool, you're going to stay alive. Your husband dead, you're a widow now, but you're going to stay alive. Now, what's interesting to me is that she did not, they did not have to sell their house. Hear that, guys. They did not have to sell their house. And they did not have to give the money to the church. They could have sold their house, kept all the money, and told the church they were going to keep all the money, and I'm proposing they would still be alive today. It's not about the money. It's not about them being willing to sell the house, even. It's about when Christians act like they're somewhere spiritually where they're not, spiritual hypocrisy God hates. That's what it's about. Don't become, and, and this is the biggest thing about in our community next to what I just said, the sense of like no, no fear. I think is there's a sense in our community, our neighbors, where there's this spiritual hypocrisy. You think you, you're fooling somebody. You come here and you tip God or you, or you, you see me and you cussing and carrying on. And then when you see the pastor, you come to one of our events, you get nice. No, just wild out if you're a sinner. Don't get nice around me. I ain't Jesus. Spiritual hypocrisy is, is demeaning to God. It makes, it, it, you're just saying the Holy Spirit is a punk. He can't figure that out. Like, you're really fooling God. It's like, are you kidding me? Just, just be foul. Or be repentant. But don't act like you're repentant when you foul. If you know you're dead, just, just be dead. I'm, I'm trying to be honest here because in our community, I think we need to have a prophetic voice and just be honest with people like, Hey, man, God isn't playing. We don't want to be a body that's spiritual hypocrites, okay? 
He ends by this, guys, and I want to say I'm proposing as she made her grand entrance, not knowing she was a widow. Man, she drops dead. They bury her too. The whole church, again, uh, it says the whole church, the fear falls on the whole church in verse 11. But before we go there, I want to propose that part of what uh, the author is doing, and then we're going to go home, is that he's really trying to, he's trying to make a case. Like, don't be like uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Be like Barnabas. It's a really plain text, right? If you compare the two, if you want to compare them, right? Barnabas obviously did not love money or things, right? He was transparent, right? He modeled trust and truth. And the scriptures say great fear came upon them all. Man, as a local body, I do love the fact that I think we have a body that, that, um, that really tries to ask the Lord, what do we need to do with our stuff? Um, and I, what, I, what I'm praying for for our body, though, is that we'll be a body who's gracious with people's answers. That we'll, be, we'll be a body who's gracious, that's gracious and truthful. Let's not lose our prophetic voice because the world tells us your, your prophetic voice too loud, Okay? Your prophetic voice too loud, MacAv. Y'all tell the truth. Y'all make y'all ask people questions that make them want to tell the truth. It's just too loud. Why are you ask me those hard questions about my life, about my sexuality, and about my money, about my friendships, about how I treat people? Your prophetic voice is too loud. That's what they tell you. Okay, don't lose it. It's a trick of the enemy for us to grow weary, and this outlasts Satan. Don't lose that prophetic voice. But what we got to make sure we have with that prophetic voice, we got to have the, the, the doctrines of grace to flow over those prophetic nuances. Okay, guys? Where we're giving people space, though. We ask the hard question, and then we give them space to be on journey because we're on journey, too. We're all on journey. We're all trying to figure this out. We're all trying to pursue Christ and love the Lord. So let's not lose our prophetic voice. But, man, this this. Let's realize, just like this church, and I, I say in the end, guys, unlike what the world wants us to believe, the church is not an entertainment center. You, we ain't trying to perform for you up here, right? These people are not performing. They're worshiping. They're worshiping God because God is real, right? This is not a kid's carnival, okay? If, even if we had millions of dollars, this wouldn't be a, a resort for your kids. You wouldn't come down here and then they dive through some tunnel and end up in la-la land. Ain't going to happen, Okay? Because that's not what this is about, okay? We want your kids to hear and understand the gospel, okay? Even if we had all kind of money, we wouldn't do that unless it helped us clearly articulate the glory of God. If we could show how going through a hoop shows the glory of Jesus. That'd be awesome. This is not. I don't, no, I, talk, I have friends all the time who say, I hate church. I hate going to church, but we still go there because my kids love it. That's bizarre. That's weird, dude. We ain't getting the gospel yet. The pastor, he ain't preaching the gospel, but man, they, their kiddie land is awesome. What makes it, how do we, how do we, how do we get there? Well, that's not what, that's not what, that's not the goal here, guys. It's not about kids carnival. It's, this is not a psychologically help place. I'm not trying to make you, you know, have more friends and ha- be happier. And uh, that might, that's going to make, that might happen when you start taking God at his word. But my goal isn't for just your happiness. That's not the goal of the people in this room, okay? And that's his point in the first century. He's trying to help all these people understand, you see those two people drop dead here? This is serious. That was his point. I'm praying for as a local body, we would fear the Lord. We would fear God. 
We will recover in our community a healthy fear of God where we will hate sin like God hates sin and we will love holiness. And we will do it with an evidence of grace and we will be prophetic in our voice. We're going to do a time of uh, communion and...